If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Bro, you ready for this one? Yeah, I've been doing my homework. I know, I know, man. You've been you've been hitting me up with the articles and you, you, you're digging into this one, man. Yeah, no, it was, um, I, I, I hope, I hope the listeners would find this fascinating because it's been a while since we've talked about foreign aid issues. Um, so, so this should be, so this should be good. This should be, um, deep. Yeah, I think so too. I think, um, I know, you know, my, my perspective, uh, on something like this is a little bit more nuanced or, or a little bit more, let's say fundamental than maybe the, the issue sort of seems to have it on the surface, but, uh, we'll get into that. What, what, drew your attention to this what made you so interested uh i mean as you said we've sort of talked a little bit about stuff like this before but but why this issue what's uh okay yeah so basically we're talking about the coup in the country of mali and canada's foreign aid has it been helpful for the country of mali and so for those of you who don't know on August the 18th, there was a mutiny in Mali. And so now the uh, political system is in limbo and they're waiting for the military to basically open up for a democratic election. So one of the issues or three of the main issues that led to this coup and the overthrowing of the government was the concern for jihadists. Uh, inter-community violence, and corruption. Now, mind you, uh, in in 2012, uh, there was a coup that led to this coup. So the leader was, (laughs) so the leader who was, um, who, who was overthrown, he came into power in 2012 from that coup. And then now, uh, uh, let's call it an unrelated coup. (laughs) <laughs> um uh, oof. or or i don't maybe even know i can't deep. i can't even no i can't even I, I personally i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't say that per se um because it was the same coup that brought him in and i'm assuming it's the same guys who who took him out and so one of the main concerns um from the article um from the economist was saying that in africa especially coups beget coups Mali is a hub for smuggling drugs, arms, and people across Africa and to Europe. That problem may now worsen, but the West must shoulder some of the blame. The number of foreign troops in the southern fringe of the Sahel has grown, as well as hefty French and contingent soldiers from Britain, America, Germany, and countries next to Mali have weighed in, but they have done little to tackle the cause of the conflict. A weak, corrupt state with scant regard for its people. And so the people are mad because about 4,000 people were killed in the Sahal last year 
around 40% of them um, in Mali. Since 2012, violence has spread from the north to the center of the country and across the region. The state has not only failed to stop the killing and may have been complicit in it. So last year, about 160 people, mostly ethnic Fulanis, were massacred by a Dogen militia in Ogasawago. So a village in central Mali, Mr. Kita, promised such atrocities would be stopped. Yet in February this year, tribesmen attacked Ogogasu, again killing 35 more. Human Rights Watch and International Monitor has documented how Mali's army let, a, let it happen, leaving the village just hours before the attack. So this is why the people are mad. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, this is a, I mean, it's something I've brought up before, but in essence, you know, corrupt government, corrupt, you know, that, that the, you know, let's say the fount, the, the, the good foundation of the American experiment of, you know, the idea of inalienable rights and, and, you know, a document like the constitution that it was intended to limit government, uh, as opposed to, you know, the Canadian charters of rights and freedoms actually is not limiting government. It's, uh, acknowledging the people's rights as opposed to the American structure, which acknowledges that the rights pre-exist government and and therefore restrains. But the reason I bring that up is to say, you know, I've a number of time on the show, I've said, you know, property rights is the solution, right? Corrupt government is a problem. You know, no one's going to, or no one, but you're going to limit the amount you're willing to grow and invest your property if all of a sudden a government official could come along and say, you don't own that, it owns, some other guy owns it by the stroke of a pen, right? Um, and and so this is a, a deep issue that, you know, when we look across the, the, you know, the water, or if we look at third world countries in general, you know, I think so often it's easy for us to just say, okay, well, they're poor, they're, you know, those countries are are not where we are. We need to help them. But I think that this, you know, the way you've laid it out, right, the the, the level of corruption within their government, um, you know, is something that that we don't see, and hopefully we never will. But but I think it it sort of is a question, uh, or the question of why are they not where we are is is not asked enough. Um, it's sort of just taken for granted. And and see, this is the fascinating thing, right? Because so President Ibrahim Bobokar Kita, right? So he he was basically they took him hostage, and then he basically said, "Okay, yeah, you guys can have it." And he basically peacefully stepped down. And I don't know, man. It there's a lot of moving pieces that, and a lot of questions that still need to be answered in regards to. What the heck is going on in Mali, and and what and what, um, what is it that Canadians are doing? Yeah, like, yeah, because I mean, so um, you know, the the what there's so there's three uh sorry just for the audience there's there's sort of three big articles that I've got that I'll put in the show notes page. One's from the Economist, so you'll need a you know a a subscription if you want to read it. But uh, one from Reuters, one from Globe and Mail, just really focused on this issue. You know, for the do do you, do you want to tell the audience uh, where did you pull most of what you described from? Was which of the articles you, you uh, pulled yes, that from, from the Economist? 
uh, from the Globe and Mail and from the uh, Government of Canada website. Okay. And and so, um, you know, what I've understood is that most of Canada's foreign aid, um, or not most, but, but a, a large portion of it. So here's a, a, a sort of sentence within... Um, the Globe and Mail's article, I think, is good. Canada is one of Mali's biggest foreign supporters, providing a total of about $1.6 billion in developmental aid over the past 20 years, along with hundreds of military peacekeepers and police trainers. Other countries, including France, have sent thousands of soldiers and military vehicles to fight Islamist radicals. So a huge aspect of this is sort of a, a peacekeeping mission or, or peacekeeping foreign aid, yes. if you want to call it that. And, and so, you know, there is a question to your point of like, well, what is Canada really doing? Are we really creating peace? Because, you know, we had a, a co-op for the last, for, what would you say? was uh, Did you say it was 2012? I think that's what you said. Uh, yeah. So we were there um, since 2012 when Amadou Toumani Toure was president. And then he was sent into exile when he was overthrown. So we've been there since that. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like we came there after the last co-op and clearly what we've been doing hasn't prevented another. And, and so, you know, it's, it's a question to say, is this the right thing? You know, should we continue to support is where, you know, all the articles are really you know, covering the issue, right? They're kind of leaving this question, you know, the, the, the article for Globe and Mail, for example, the headline is Canada should rethink aid to Mali after two co-ops uh, analysts say is, is the name of the article. So sorry, wait, did you say, well, why do you keep saying co-ops? Co- what did you say? Coup. Coup? Well, it's got a P on the end of it. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. It's the coup. 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 Co-op. Coup. Whatever. It's all good. Co-op placement is, is uh, when you're, uh, <laughs> you're in high school. Yeah, coup. Okay, I'll stick yeah. with coup. Okay, um, I'm so, just thinking like you co-opted the government. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. no, it's, it's yeah, yeah. So, so we're we're good. We're on the same page. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so I think you know for for you when you when you've read and when you dug into this issue so much because you're you're way more versed. I mean I've got I've got an understanding, but you you've definitely dug into this way more than me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what like do you do you see that that there's sort of an argument for for Canada staying even though you know to some extent it's sort of a question of like well what what good are we really producing? Yes, yeah, so. That's a good question because when I was doing the research and I was looking at this thing, I was like, okay, so wait, what what is Canada actually doing over there? But you know, so you look at all the military, and then on the on our website, the the Canadian government website, it says to achieve this, Canada's work in Mali focuses on increasing Canada's diplomatic engagement in Mali. Right, so I'm assuming that's in relation to trying to keep the peace uh, politically. It talks about improving the lives of Malayans, especially women and children, by reducing poverty and inequality through development programming. doesn't say what it is. Providing vital humanitarian assistance to those in need. doesn't say what it is. Supporting economic growth that works for everyone through promoting sustainable development and increased investments. Supporting security sector form reform, including small arms 
and light weapons and management. Uh, do a quick Google for me, Joel, and find mm -hmm. out what light weapons are. Light weapons. Is that a Nerf gun? Is that <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know what light weapons <laughs> <laughs> management is. Uh, my, my thought would be, uh, you know, like like the police equivalent. Um, that's sort of what I, I envision that to okay, mean, well, yeah, as opposed do, to, do quick, you know, a military. I, yeah, I'm sure there's not going to be. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> I mean, small arms and let. Uh, actually, it's yeah. so funny. Well, just do, do a quick Google. Okay. So next, uh, supporting peace and reconciliation through a range of activities to promote stability, inclusion and gender equality, counterterrorism, capacity uh, building and encourage dialogue between the government and armed groups to establish a lasting peace. And finally, preventing violent extremism and providing protection for crisis affected civilians. Uh, can, yeah. So, so I got, I got an answer for you. Okay. Um, it's, it's gun control. Okay. <laughs> All right, it's gun control, but, but right, like way. it's it's training and and controlling the 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 small small and light arms. Okay, that's fine. Sort of be okay, what, that's fine. So the question is, as Canadians and in, in in Canada's president presence in Mali in regards to supporting peace and reconciliation through a range of activities to promote stability, is it working? Preventing violent extremism and providing protection. Based on what I, I read prior from the Economist article, no. Like, if I could be as gracious as I can be, no, we haven't. It's. I don't think it's working. And and I mean, this is why I say like, um, you know, I approach this issue from a more fundamental level because you know the economics. So so let's let me let me break it down as to let's let's like uh, I don't want to say. The steel man, the argument for, you know, for foreign aid. So the simplest argument is from, I think is, so the vicious circle of poverty theory was championed by Paul Samuelson. And, and sort of the, the, that argument is that countries need capital uh, subsidies in order to develop because they have no resources to spare to invest in capital. And so th that sort of idea is that, you know, a country like North America or, or continent like North America, you know, we've developed because and, and in the last hundreds of years. And as a result, we've had created excess. And when we create excess, we, we turn that into capital. That capital makes labor more productive, which then makes us more prosperous because our labor is, you know, we can produce more and continually as we, and then we continue to accumulate capital. So these countries are so poor that they need a capital injection to uh, get them to the place where their labor is productive enough that they can continue to accumulate. They, they produce more than they consume. Yeah. But see, and this is where, you know, I would, and maybe you would agree with me, but this is where I think uh, foreign aid fails. I've been reading, and I came across this economist named Dambisa Moya. So she's an Oxford-trained African-American or African economist from Zambia. And she argues uh, foreign aid is actually the main cause of continuing poverty in Africa. She explains that aid has prevented Africa from moving toward economic growth. 
So she goes uh, on to yes. say, yeah. So she goes on to say, um, I agree. Uh, so, so she goes on to say <laughs> that has more than us one trillion in development assistance over the last several decades made African people better off. No, in fact, across the globe, recipients of this aid are worse off, much worse off. Aid has helped make the poor poorer and growth slower. The notion that aid can alleviate systemic poverty and and has done so is a myth. Millions in Africa are poor today because of aid. Misery and poverty have not ended, but have increased aid, have increased. Aid has been and continues to be an unmitigated political, economic, and humanitarian disaster for most parts of the developing world. And so she goes on to say that she's not opposed to humanitarian emergency aid, which helps people affected by catastrophes, and neither is um, is she opposed to the charity-based aid aid which is dispersed by charitable organizations so it's the ngo it's the the ngo yeah, type stuff yeah, so presumably by like religious groups humanitarian agencies or whatever uh but she is opposed to aid payments made directly to governments either through government to government transfers or through agencies such as the world bank so so moya is yeah sorry that's that's more of the ngo type of uh stuff that i was referring sorry yeah so, so she's yeah, so she goes on to yeah, so she goes on to say that the reason why aid is so harmful is that foreign aid props up corrupt governments, providing them with free, usable cash. These corrupt governments um, basically interfere with the rule of law, the establishment of transparent civil institutions, and the protection of civil liberties, making both domestic and foreign investment in poor countries unattractive. Greater opacity and fewer investments reduce economic growth, which leads to fewer job opportunities and increasing poverty levels. So in response to growing poverty, donors give more aid, which continues uh, the downward spiral of poverty. This is the vicious cycle of aid, the cycle that chokes off desperately needed investment, instills a culture of dependency and facilitates rampant and systemic corruption. It perpetuates underdevelopment and guarantees economic failure in the poorest aid-dependent countries. Yeah. Moya of Zambia. You guys need to check her out. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll make sure have something in the show notes page. Uh, you know, I, it's so funny. I have an article from from Tom DiLorenzo. Uh, actually, it's a it's a couple of years back. It's from two thousand five. The title is Foreign Aid Disaster or Foreign Aid is a Disaster in the Making. And, and you know, he points out basically the exact same things, but he also said uh, something I thought was really, really interesting was um, foreign aid actually lets corrupt interventionist governments off the hook for their counterproductive, if not disastrous economic policies. And so you were sort of speaking more so to like you know, corrupt governments. Um, but let's say what he made, this line to me is also speaking to incompetent governments, right? So governments who have made bad decisions have made their people worse off. The foreign aid actually subsidizes and incentivizes that bad behavior because, and and I think this is where she would, like her point kind of uh, resonates is that those governments 
have no incentive to change their behavior because by not changing their behavior, they continue to get foreign aid. Mm-hmm. So it's it's sort of like an addict, right? You continue to give them the drug, you know, unless you're trying to wean someone off the drug, basically you're going to continue their, you know, bad behavior. Yeah. No, and this mm. is the thing, because like her book is very fascinating. It's called Dead Aid. Why aid is not working and how there is a better way for Africa. And so it isn't necessarily for me, it's, it's teaching me that, you know, foreign aid isn't necessarily the solution as it, as it relates from government to government. Um, I'm for um, private ventures, like she said, but I think when it comes to the military and the military's presence, um, that still is a more peculiar. Yeah. Because like, you know, man, you know, dealing with, with jihadists and, and, and the threat of terrorism. um, Personally, I, I take that seriously. And it's easy for me to talk here in my, in my cozy, um, <laughs> non-bombed here. country. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> but do you, can you imagine what it's like living um, in a place oh. where where that's a threat, where you know your town or your city can be overtaken, and that's it. So, mm-hmm. like, there's. Well, I mean, of- the other aspect of that too is the, the corrupt government, just you know. Yes. Also being another threat, right? Yes. So you've got the jihadis yes. on one side yes. and you've got corrupt government on the other, arguably. Right. Right. right? Like, I, I mean, uh, you know, we in America talk about like the government putting their boot on, on our necks, but like, you know, we, we, to some extent are, are highly ignorant to, to, to those. So, yeah. The threat, the threat of that kind of corruption, whether you get it from um, the terrorists or you get it from um, your government. Uh, but yeah. hold on, let's continue to move forward. Cause we want to make an, an argument for both. Um, the pros and cons of Canada's presence in in Mali, and so the the first the first thing we got, or the first um, pro per se, is that uh, from Fen Hampson, who's a professor of international affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa, and he said that um, there is a tendency to see Mali as a bit of a sinkhole because of the billions already spent by Western countries. It's a long-term problem, and you're going to have to have lots of failure. But at the end of the day, you have to ask the question, what is the alternative? So the alternative to pull back and walk away would not just mean destabilization in Mali um, and continuation of problems in the north where you have both separatist um, elements and islamic jihadists it's the yeah so what is the better situation because if if canada pulls out um you're going to have um probably possibly more more mayhem malayan mayhem yeah i mean you know that argument to me um i mean uh, uh, as much as like it, it sounds reasonable. It's sort of like compared to what, like how, how, how do you know? Right. Like when and the reason I say, how do you know? It's like, the, and the reason I'm not sim- totally sympathetic to that argument is because we just look at the regime change wars with the U S and Iran and Iraq and you know, all of that craziness that's been going on for 20 years. And we, we know that what they did with, I think it was with Saddam Hussein basically made everything worse off. Right. The, the U S directly caused ISIS with what they were doing. And, and so um, the, the, 
the reason I bring that up, I mean, the best person on all of, you know, in my opinion is uh, Scott Horton. I can put his a link to him in the show notes page, but just when it comes to anything foreign military, mostly us, but, but you, you know, all of that type of stuff, he's just a beast on these things from trying to be objective, um, you know, which is hard to find, I think, in my opinion. Um, so I, I bring all that up to say, you know, in the short term, obviously, if Canada was to pull out and they're providing military uh, protection or, or, you know, let's say some level of protection for citizens that aren't, um, you know, extremists or, or you know, willing to, to wage war on their citizen, other citizens, um, okay, yes, there's going to be, there, there's likely going to be some short-term consequences. But the, again, I go back to like fundamental question, like in the long term, what is what does this country need? The long term, the country doesn't need Canada's occupation of the country, <laughs> right? Like Canada being on their soil is not what they need in the long term. We would all agree with that. Um, well, no, they, well, we wouldn't all agree. Well, okay, for for them to be better off, they would not need any other country to help maintain order of their country. Right, we Canada may help them get there. My point was, in the long run, Canada, the goal should be for Canada not to be there. Right, yes. we should. Right, that's my point. Right, so the question of how do they get to a place of stability on their own is the proper question. the The way he's worded it, yes, he does say long term, but he says the alternative is to pull back and walk away. Well, okay, that sounds like a very you know, in my opinion, I would classify this as a false dilemma. Like there's a, probably a spectrum of things in between just walking away, pull, you know, pull your men out and don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, yeah. And I would agree. I'm not, I wouldn't say, um, necessarily, necessarily to leave. I mean, we spent $140 million this year. Um, Alone. That's a drop in the bucket, bro. These guys have just been printing money. This is 2020. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, again, my heart goes out um, to the people in, um, in Mali and that as, as Canadians, especially as a first world country, I still feel like there's still a responsibility for us to help out where we can. But again, it's very confusing because like we, we were there since 2012. We were there since the last coup. Actually, it's uh, the, 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 the uh, article for Global Mail said there was two coups since we've been there. Really? Yeah, that, I was just like, wait. Yeah, yeah, that, I'm, yeah. I'm seeing one for uh, so, 2012. So after it says after two military coups in Mali in the past eight years. So unless okay, yeah, 2012 was I guess the first one and 2020. Um, and and yeah, sorry, you said we've been present there since 2012. But before um, that, actually. Well, and and I was going to say the article later in the article says we've been giving money for twenty years, so maybe the military presence didn't show up till eight years ago. That sounds sort yeah, of yeah, but either way, um, yeah. it, it it didn't prevent it didn't prevent this coup, and so mm-hmm. and so and now it kind of makes you say, okay, well, is it worth well? That's a counter argument to this guy saying like he's saying, well, you know, what's the alternative? 
well, what we're currently doing isn't, isn't working. working. Yeah, not so, sure. you know, we need an alternative. And that's why I said, I think he's presenting a false dilemma of like, well, the alternative is to just leave. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's not just the alternative. Okay, well, let's look so, at um, one of the cons from Chris Roberts, a political scientist at the University of Calgary who specializes in Africa and peacekeeping issues. And he said, um, the heavy flow of foreign aid has all has allowed Mali's government to stall the political reforms and accountability measures that made that measures that it badly needs. As most Malayans on the street know, the international community is part of Mali's fundamental political crisis. It seems to support um, an entrenched, entrenched, sorry, political class. Deep state. So Mr. Roberts told uh, the Globe and Mail that uh, the years before the 2012 coup, and again in the years before the latest coup, Canada significantly significantly expanded its aid for Mali, and he said Canada ramped up its bilateral aid to Mali as political Malay's uh, corruption and security dynamics got worse. He said, we ignored the direct and indirect effects of development and security assistance. Mali's political elites face no incentives to change, to improve institutions, elections, and accountability when they know the international community will keep the financial flows coming. Until we try harder to understand how high levels of aid foster an unaccountable political system. We are part of the problem. Yeah, and I mean, I would say his presentation isn't so much the reason to leave the military presence as it is the reason to to stop giving money or or even just to reduce. Well, and and like or or change our approach, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, potentially, let's say Canada sponsoring. No, sponsoring is not the right word. And of course, I'm not a big fan of Canada doing anything, but but Canada sort of, let's say, helping, uh, like, let's say the Canadian government was to help humanitarian aid, right? So pr- if they're going to do things to to give money to charities that are going to help the, the underprivileged in that country, whether it's with food, supplies, building wells, right? Like the, the humanitarian aspect would be a means to, uh, in essence, circumvent the corrupt government. Um, and, and so this is where, you know, that article from Tom DiLorenzo that I, that I read out or read that clip from, um, sort of plays into this because it, it, again, the statement he made is that the, these funds prevent corrupt or, or sorry, the, the, what you were reading was focusing so more so on the corrupt and, and what I read sort of spoke to also just the, the, the incompetent or the the government failures, right? So um, his arguments demonstrating that clearly this governmental, the governance side of what this government is doing is failing this country. And by giving them money, we're not forcing them to reform we're, or we're preventing them from actually making any sort of changes to, to help their citizens. And so it goes back to my, I think my attic analogy, um, that, that that's sort of the trajectory that, that Canada or the the foreign aid is helping them on. Um, what's crazy, I have uh, four articles from fee.org that span from like, the first one's from Henry, Henry Hazlitt in 1970. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's from a chapter of his book or one of his books. 
foreign aid, foreign investment versus foreign aid. Uh, there's an article from 2001, the sorry record of foreign aid in Africa. And from 1990, the failures and fallacies of foreign aid. So I'll put it in the show notes page for, for any, you know, listeners who want to see a little bit more. Uh, and then I have a 2019 one as well. Can local solutions succeed where foreign aid has failed? Mm-hmm. Um, so just th- these are all, you know, economic arguments for that have been made over and uh, like, these are 20 years later, 20 years later, same arguments being made, same, you know, and you'll have different data points for, for a listener who wants to sort of see the, the counter, a legit counter argument to foreign aid. Um, because, you know, the intention behind foreign aid, nobody is questioning the intention, mm-hmm. right? Like the intention may be good. The question is, is it effective? Um, and if it's not effective, why should we be doing something just because it has good intentions when it's basically failing? And also, but also we also have to make sure that we're looking at the alternative um, because like we don't want to create a false dilemma where it's saying, okay, because foreign aid doesn't work, uh, that means uh, we should just not do give nothing. it all. Yeah, do nothing at all. Yeah, and, and I mean, obviously, as the the libertarian voice, right? Like, compelled charity isn't really charity, right? So, foreign aid is generally done through taxes, right? It's not like Canadian government is putting a call out to Canadians to support a charity that's helping, you know, and it's totally voluntary. No, this is done, you know, essentially, they took your money by force, then they gave it to that country by force. So, you know, it's not like, at least I would argue, it's not like Canadians can kind of say, yeah, we're doing this great thing through our taxes. Well, you didn't really voluntary or make a choice to do this. So I'll I'll digress on that point. But what I think is, you know, another aspect of of foreign aid that we didn't quite mention, uh, and there's this term in economics called rent seeking. um, And and foreign aid is uh, because, and and the quote you read out from from your girl basically said, it's money from government to another government. So because the funds go to another government, it creates rent-seeking. And um, this article from David Henderson, it's econlib.org. It's essentially defining um, rent-seeking. But he said, a better term is privilege-seeking because they use the term to describe people's lobbying of government to give them special privileges. So the the, the idea is when you do foreign aid, you're creating opportunity for rent seeking or, or privilege seeking in this case, because people are going to lobby the government to get that money that this government has just gotten. Right. And, and this is why a, a government doesn't want to get rid of it because that ability to distribute the funds gives them abundance of power. Because now everybody in the country or all of the, let's say, power, other non-governmental powerful people or influential people are now coming to them asking for these handouts because they just got a handout that they got to distribute. And clearly the way they've been distributing it hasn't helped the country. And arguably it had, well, until the co-op or until the coup, it it was helping there. (laughs) Well, you know what's so funny? There's another, like, it's coup de tape. So- It's so it's C O U P and then there's D E T A T. So a coup or coup d'etat is the removal of an existing government from power, usually through violent means. Typically, it is an illegal, unconstitutional seizure of power by political faction, the military, or dictator. So let me ask you this. 
What's your two cents on this whole cool <sighs> thing? I, I think uh, my two cents is that this is another example uh, where well-intended activities, even good economic uh, sort of underpinning, had good intentions, but uh, when as you start to look at the, let's call it empirical data, it doesn't play out, right? As as the you know as you just again that quote you gave, and I, I've got her her website, so I'll make sure it's on the show notes page. She basically said, or Dembisa, she said like you do you see statistically speaking, countries that have foreign aid are not succeeding. We don't see them growing out of their poverty. And so as an economist mind, I've probably on the show said, I might not have said this on the show, but I think in economics, we have this big problem where um, stats drive economic theory. Um, But this to me is an example where stats play the proper role. So that economic theory was that, well, these countries need capital assistance in order to get to the place where their labor is more productive to help with. So, that was a great hypothesis. The data is showing that that hypothesis or that theory needs to be challenged. So in economics, my argument is that we take the data and then try to create a theory to explain it. What should be happening is you have a theory that you've logically sort of constructed or deduced um, based on other fundamental principles. And now you go to the real world to test with the data. When the data doesn't work, you figure out what is wrong with the theory or what is wrong with the application because the context is different. Um, so I know I got kind of super technical in my economic nerdness, um, but I, I think this is a, a perfect example where government intentions are failing miserably, but because their intentions are good, we keep doing what we've been doing. And I would also argue, go look at Trudeau's failed attempt to end up on some UN special counsel. Uh, This is an (laughs) example of why he wouldn't cut foreign aid because when you're trying to end up on a, you know, non-governmental special body uh, in the UN, you're going to do everything you can to look like you're part of the United Nations and doing everything you can. Um, And so, the, the spending of this money is also uh, due to bad incentives, even though its intentions might be good. Man, what's going on in Mali is a hot mess. It's a hot mess, man. And, you know, there's no, there's no easy answer. Um, I think the thing that, that sticks out to me is that um, not, not just, not just um, what, what's going on in government, but also what's going on with the people. And we see that, you know, that there's a history of within Africa of um, coups, right? Where people are constantly overthrowing the government, right? And you kind of have to ask yourself, okay, look, we see a coup in 2010 in Nigeria. Uh, We see one in 2012 in Mali, one 2013 in Egypt, we see one in 2017 in Zimbabwe, and in 2019 in the Sudan. Like it, like the it, like the Economist article said, like it seems like in Africa, you know, coups beget more coups, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right, and it's it's just like it almost seems like well, okay, well they ha- but we, they set up a democracy, um, in a sense you kind of have to let it you know take its course, 
um, and 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 respect for law and the respect for government. Yes, um, the government is totally not <laughs> not doing its job in regards to um, protecting the people, but at the same time, you know, it it, it goes both ways, and and I think it's kind of it's really sad to see that. Yeah, you're having problems on both ends. It's not just to say, okay, well, you know, if we, if we put the right leadership in in place like who's to say if we put the right leadership in place that the people you know the military might you know say try to overthrow them because they don't like what's going on right so i i guess i would have to do more research on well it's it's so funny because as you were talking about it i think of like you know what was the real purpose of the second amendment was that you know the the people were a well-armed militia to prevent the government from doing or or from the military taking over the government mm-hmm. right or from government becoming tyrannical with the power of the, the the military behind them because the military was the well-armed militia of the people so um you know it's again i don't know how much that does that play into the solution for countries like this do you you know but it just makes me think of you know what again let's ask some more fundamental questions what is different about countries that succeed from where these countries are at? You know, look at the countries who had a, a coup and are no longer there. I don't know if there are any, but, you know, what or the countries that have never had a coup, what exists there that's being successful? Um, and, and I would argue, uh, unfortunately, that many government perspectives... Um, doesn't want to acknowledge that maybe some of the reasons that or some of the successes are when government has less power, when government is more laissez-faire. So they're never going to promote those solutions because that means their ability to influence those countries gets diminished. Yeah, no, Uh, I I, I don't, I don't see that being, (laughs) but I I still still think if I could leave the listeners with something, I would say that um, as Canadians, I think it's important, especially as tax paying (laughs) Canadians, it's important to know, where where your money's going and what it's doing so that way um yeah you have a better understanding and and at some points you can say okay well you can voice your opinion and i think the more people know about it um the more you can have a say in what's being done with your tax dollars and what's being done in mali yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, it's a fair point. I think you know this I would say I'll expand that even further like tax dollars in general, right? Like how much do Canadians really know where their money goes? Where, you know, and, and um, maybe we should care a little bit more because maybe we would challenge the government and how much they tax us more. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But as far as like from my heart, it does, it does break my heart seeing all the foolishness that's going on and the people dying and, and jihadists and so forth and terrorism. And so that's why I'm, I'm for Canada being there um, and having a military presence. Um, I believe in, um, you know, love your neighbor, Matthew 22, um, 39. Um, But then we also see that in Obadiah, Obadiah 11, God telling, well, through Obadiah, he's rebuking um, the nation of Edom because the Jews are taken into captivity by, by Nebuchadnezzar and the, uh, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar and, um, the Babylonians. And so, so we see that, you know, God is still for intervention and for nations defending each other if, if possible. So, you know, 
I pray that, you know, Canada will be able to make a difference, but statistically I'm not seeing the difference. Um, I'm still on the fence and I got to do more research, man. But as, but as far as like, I, I'm not for us totally leaving, but trying to make a difference where we can. Yeah. That's my two and, cents. And uh, I'll leave it with a simple line. Doing the same thing and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. Let us know what you guys think. Is this your first time hearing about what's going on in Mali? Uh, what do you think would be uh, the best solutions? And prior to the episode, what, what was your view on foreign aid? Because I know mine prior to that was, you know, foreign aid is a open shut case. You know, send as much money as you can to help. But the research shows that uh, the handouts to third world countries doesn't necessarily help. Uh, so let me know what you guys think. Uh, you can contact us at support at gmail.com. You can uh, contact us on Facebook and Twitter. If you're trying to get in touch with me, it's do get a Darnell, D-O-G-U-D-D-A underscore Darnell on Twitter, Instagram, and Darnell Sam is on Facebook. And I'm T Joel N39 everywhere. Uh, definitely had some good conversations with listeners recently. So uh, keep up the communication. We like it. It helps us, challenges us, gives us uh, feedback, what you liked, what you didn't like. Uh, and I, I mean, the last listener who, who reached out gave me some more content on our uh, Charter Schools episode. So uh, oh, thank yes, you. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. shout out. Thank you, for, yes. thank you for sharing your two cents. Six cents makes change. But you heard me? Does that make sense?